The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We are ready to offer a highly ambitious trade deal, including zero tariffs and zero quotas. There is no need for a free trade agreement to involve accepting EU rules on competition policy, subsidies, social protection, the environment, or anything similar. I think there is a significant risk of what some people are calling No Deal 2.0. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. Good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke. Brace, brace, brace. That's what it feels like, I think, here in the UK, getting ready for coronavirus. There are only 53 cases confirmed up until now, uh, but it feels that the mindset is there preparing for uh, this uh, this virus. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about working from home. We're already seeing some shelves looking pretty empty. The commute is getting a little bit more spacious, should we say. So it's definitely coming. And then we had that briefing yesterday. Of course, calm was the word from the government around how they're dealing with this crisis and how we should be reacting. Yeah, absolutely. The regulator, the FCA, saying that it's reviewing contingency plans of a wide range of firms here in the UK. Uh, The London Book Fair has been cancelled. But as you say, great efforts being made to avoid public panic. Well, uh, joining us uh, this uh, afternoon is Bloomberg Opinion columnist Therese Raphael, as usual with us on a Wednesday, because of course it's also PMQs. Uh, So we'll bring you uh, that as soon as it starts. But just firstly on coronavirus, you were saying to me, lots being written on the Bloomberg Terminal about it. Yes, I mean, I think it, it perfectly encapsulates, I think, most people's uh, uncertainty and how, of how to deal with this when you see that the government has set up war rooms. You know, there is Cobra Committee uh, uh, meetings on the subject. So that suggests, you know, very heightened state of, of awareness alert. At the same time, you know, the, the message being put out is be calm, no need for panic bu- buying. You know, people don't even really need to wear masks. So, you know, all of us are left wondering just how bad is it going to get? It said that we're behind Italy in this in the curve of the uh, of the coronavirus outbreak, which suggests it gets worse before it gets better. Um, you know, the government said it's spread beyond containment. Now it's just about sort of delaying and um, controlling the spread of the disease and preparing the health service for, um, you know, for, for a lot of increased demand. I suppose there are two questions we have to ask. One is how bad is it going to get? The other one is how well equipped are we to deal with it? What would you say about that? Well, I think how bad is it going to get? Nobody you know, really knows. We know it's a very high level of infectiousness. We know that the actual mortality rate seems still to be, um, you know, in the order of one or two percent. We're not not entirely sure. But the economic consequences are, um, you know, going to be incredibly interesting. This is at a time just before Boris Johnson's about to, or his new chancellor, Rishi Sunak, is about to release an important budget. Uh, and in which, you know, Brexit mitigation is uh, was the order of the day before the coronavirus. If the government needs to legislate uh, in order to, uh, you know, mitigate some mm. of the the um, the costs of yeah. dealing with the coronavirus or help businesses cope, that's going to increase you know, demands oh, quite right, a bit. All right, Trez, just going to have to cut yeah. you off there because we've got to go to Prime Minister's questions. Jeremy Corbyn putting his first question to the Prime Minister. 
finally publish the steps that his government will take to tackle the outbreak of the disease. And the strategy broadly has our support. But a decade of Tory austerity means, means our National Health Service is already struggling to cope. Bed occupancy levels are at 94% and hundreds of our most vulnerable people are being treated on trolleys in corridors. What additional funding will our overstretched and underfunded NHS be given to deal with this crisis? Uh, well, Mr Speaker, as the right honourable gentleman knows, uh, this government has put in record funding into the NHS. And uh, we've pledged that we will give them everything uh, they need to cope with the crisis. Uh, I think it might be for the advantage of the right honourable gentleman and the House if I update the House on uh, where we are with the coronavirus outbreak. And uh, as yesterday's plan made clear, uh, we are not at the point yet where we are asking large numbers of people to self-isolate. But uh, that, of course, may come if large numbers of people have the symptoms of coronavirus. And if they stay at home, the House will understand that they are helping to protect all of us by slowing the spread of the virus. And that's what the best scientific evidence tells us. If they stay at home, and if we ask people to self-isolate, they may lose out financially. So I can today announce that the Health Secretary will bring forward, as part of our emergency coronavirus legislation, measures to allow the payment of statutory sick pay from the very first day you were sick instead of four days under the current rules. And I think that's the right way forward. Nobody uh, should be, be penalised, Mr Speaker, for doing the right thing. Mr Speaker, I thank the Prime Minister for that, but I want to ask him a couple of more questions on this subject. Is it, is it true, as has been reported, that police forces are likely to become so overstretched by coronavirus that 999 response times will have to be extended and that even investigations into some murders will have to be halted as a result of this? Well, well, Mr Speaker, we are not at uh, that stage or anything like that stage yet. Uh, our, our police forces, he knows, uh, our police forces are well able to cope with all types of eventualities and uh, they have long-standing arrangements to prepare them for such pressures. Mr Speaker... Okay, so that was the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and uh, the leader of the opposition, Jeremy Corbyn, speaking. Uh, Back to uh, Bloomberg's Therese Raphael on this. So um, the Prime Minister held that press conference yesterday. Today he's talking about the emergency legislation, uh, including payment of statutory six pay from the start of maybe time that people need to take off work rather than being delayed four days. What comes to our minds, of course, that doesn't include the gig economy, anyone who doesn't basically get sick pay. And uh, it also doesn't uh, do anything for universal credit, uh, you know, people who may be on benefits. So there are some big holes. Yeah, there are two things here. I mean, one is uh, he doesn't really answer. Well, he doesn't answer at all. Jeremy Corbyn's question about what is he prepared to do for the NHS? He Mm. doesn't say that he's giving more money to the NHS. What we have heard before is that the government has told the NHS to prioritize uh, uh, extremely, uh, you know, 
extremely ill people or emergencies, which means there are a lot of people who are going to need NHS services who may not get it as this advances. The second thing is obviously on the statutory sick pay, I and mean, that is not, um, it, it is not full uh, uh, salary during no, that period. No, no. That is only, I think it's something like 90 pounds a it's week. about 94 pounds 94 a pounds week. 94 pounds yeah. a week. Um, and as you say, it doesn't include um, uh, a lot of workers, gig economy workers, people on uh, zero pay contracts and that sort of thing. On the police, again, we've heard the same thing. It's about prioritization. So crime in general, um, you know, many crimes may go unaddressed. So these are two major public services are under enormous strain that will be affected by the way the government is uh, is directing them to deal with the coronavirus. Okay, so that is coronavirus. The other big story that is bubbling along alongside this is Priti Patel, the Home Secretary. New revelations from the BBC, The Times and The Sun about new allegations of bullying in a third Whitehall department now. This is becoming, Therese, a full-blown political crisis. Yeah, again, I think like coronavirus, this has moved from containment to trying to make sure (laughs) this doesn't spread any further. And, uh, you know, I I would have said, um, you know, and I'd still probably say that she's his unsackable minister for several reasons. She is uh, a, a staunch believer in a hard line on immigration, which plays extremely well among the conservative voters in the north of the country that that helped him win the election. She's very much liked in the Tory base. Um, but this crisis has really threatened to sort of get out of hand because we now have seen, uh, you know, a number of civil servants anonymously come out and accuse her of bullying. Um, and so what it sets up is a, is a real battle between a government that has not just, you know, not just promising to deliver Brexit, but promising to reshape the civil service and place it in the service of this new post-Brexit agenda. Mm. Um, so this really sets up uh, that kind of uh, fight, almost like uh, Boris Johnson had when he took on the judiciary after the prorogation of parliament. Mm. Uh, but it also impacts on a major ministry that is at the front lines of the post-Brexit agenda from immigration and customs. There is so much to talk about, Therese, today, but I really can't let you leave the studio without asking you about what you are writing on the Bloomberg Terminal at the moment, which is about the UK U.S. trade uh, negotiations. Of course, um, you know, the U.K. and the EU are beginning to negotiate, but nobody missed the symbolism of the U.K. starting to talk with the U.S. as well about a trade deal. Yeah. And the message here is, uh, you know, that that post-Brexit, the big dividend, Boris Johnson has said, is as important as an EU deal is to go after the trade deal with the U.S., of very thick document. Just to give readers a sense of of how important this is, that document begins with what sounds like a marketing pitch. You know, free trade agreement with the U.S. presents significant opportunities, higher wages, better jobs, more choice, lower prices. And then if you look at the U.K., uh, mandate, uh, sorry, the U.S. mandate for its negotiations with the U.S., it's a very sort of anodyne document. The Trump administration notifies Congress that it intends to negotiate a trade agreement with the U.K., so very different approaches from the two. The bottom line here is the economic benefits of a trade deal are quite small. It's not that they're not nothing, but, you know, we're talking 0.16% of GDP for the U.K. in, you know, best-case scenarios. But politically, why both sides want this for Boris Johnson, it's about showing that sovereignty delivers and that Britain is reorienting itself. And for Donald Trump, it's setting America up uh, to challenge the EU as another regulatory juggernaut in the world. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. 
But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's have a look at what else is making the news in the world of politics. We start with a report from the Resolution Foundation, which says the Prime Minister should look beyond large transport projects like HS2 to ensure extra spending helps Britain's entire economy. The budget next week is going to raise capital outlays outlays probably by £20 billion. But according to the Foundation's report, the boost aimed at, quote, levelling up poor regions in the north of the Midlands needs to be extended. In highlights, uh, how it, it highlights how London spending per head of nearly £1,500 is more than double that of the East Midlands, Yorkshire or the South West. An age-old story, Caroline. Yeah, I can't help but feel that coronavirus may well sweep aside all of the issues around the big projects that the government has, at least, uh, you know, even if just temporarily. Uh, but there is this interesting line on business rates. Uh, business groups have warned that urgent reform is needed uh, for business rates to avoid, quote, ghost towns and low lost jobs. I mean, is this not perhaps already happening? In a letter to the Chancellor, organisations including the Association of Convenience stores, the British Chambers of Commerce, uh, the British Property Federation and Federation of Small Businesses. They've all called for a major overhaul of the current system. I hope, I suppose that they are hoping that their voices will be heard ahead of again of the budget. 50 of the UK's leading hospitality bosses have also signed a separate letter criticising the impact of business rates on the sector. I mean, this is such a live issue and has been for several years in the retail market. Well, yeah, you ask any small business, what do you want? And they will always say lower business rates. And then you've got the Pretty Patel story which we covered a little bit in the first part of the programme. Let's bring you some detail. She's now facing allegations in a third government department. This is around claims that she's bullied staff. The BBC's Newslight programme said that a senior official at the Department for International Development reported a, quote, tsunami of allegations of abuse by officials in her private office. The claims follow the resignation at the weekend of the top official at the Home Office, Sir Philip Rutnam, and a former aide at the Department for Work and Pensions has also reported to have received a £25,000 payout after claiming she was bullied by Patel when she was the employment minister. Mm, Okay, so those are all of the uh, stories that we are looking at this morning. But let's uh, take you to one of the big issues facing the government. The US and British governments are sounding keen to seal the deal that could reduce tariffs, eliminate non-tariff barriers and also increase market access between the two nations. Yes, we're talking about uh, the uh, trade deal. In contrast, political pressure, economic trade-offs and also a tight deadline may well actually increase the possibility of failure when it comes to the UK-EU trade talks that have also kicked off in Brussels this week. Well, for more, we're joined by Anand Menon, who is the Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London and Director of the UK in a Changing Europe Research Group. Really great to have you on again, uh, Anand. So look, the confrontation uh, is uh, basically, is it a good look for countries when actually we need to cooperate in order to tackle coronavirus? Is it you know, difficult to clash the UK and the EU when you have this major health issue? Well, clearly when it comes to things like the coronavirus, we're going to need to keep working together into the future regardless of the Brexit deal. But Brexit does make things more difficult potentially in several ways. I mean, firstly, 
and the way we're talking about in terms of the talks, the formal methods of cooperation that we rely on as an EU member state are no longer available to us. And this government is indicating it doesn't want much in the way of institutionalized cooperation. But I think the bigger danger, actually, given the way the talks seem to be proceeding at the moment, which is that both sides are drawing very, very red, red lines, is if the talks break down, then the sort of political spillover might make it even harder for both sides to sit down and collaborate even on those areas where there's a clear joint need to do so. Would you think any lessons can be learned from this? Because we're seeing a situation now where, as Caroline says, there is some necessity to work together. You've got every Conservative MP who comes on this programme talking about an Australia-style deal, which is essentially a no deal, as a viable option. And that's going to create scenarios where, for example, transporting medicines around could be very difficult. Uh, well, yes. I mean, there are, there are lots of questions about no deal. I mean, certainly it will lead to all sorts of problems, whether it comes to transporting medicines or transport in general, because, of course, air transport uh, flying to Europe will become more problematic if there's no arrangement. All years won't be able to have licenses to do their business in Europe. It will be, it'll have very significant disruptive effects. Uh, what we're not sure about with no deal is whether the two sides would return to the table. But, yeah, I think... I think a lot of those Conservative MPs are not really pricing in the significant disruption that could occur. And if we're in the middle of a serious outbreak of coronavirus at the time, that will only make things harder. Mm, Okay, yeah, indeed. Just this morning, uh, I was reading about the fact that there is a confirmed coronavirus case now in an EU institution in Brussels. That's according to AFP. So uh, how much, uh, you know, will that sort of upend even just the kind of mechanics of the talk? So this is an official actually at the European Defence Agency in Brussels who has tested positive for coronavirus again according to reports from uh, AFP and they were citing a commission spokesperson but look when it comes to the the trade talks they began on Monday there was a lot of fanfare big build-up towards it and then nothing much after that have you heard anything well Bear in mind, that's what always happens, isn't it, is the media turn up on the first day. There are lots of great photos of the two sides sitting in a room looking very determined. And then the detail stuff starts and everyone slightly loses interest because those details don't make for good headlines. So I think this is just a pattern that repeats itself with trade talks. Is there's a lot of very technical stuff to be negotiated. What I have heard so far is there is no sign of on the big issues of principle where the two sides differ of either side as yet being willing to make any concessions. But I think, you know, one of the things that often happens in these trade talks is that concessions and movement comes late in the day. Uh, I wouldn't really expect either side to start moving until we're into the autumn, to be perfectly honest. The interesting question there is the British government has said, if we don't think there's sufficient progress being made by the end of June, we might simply walk from the talks. If they make good on that threat, then, of course, then we've just got six months to prepare for no deal. So no concessions as of yet. But do you, based on what we've heard from both sides, see any sort of possible landing zone here? You've talked in the past about a bare bones deal, but that really wouldn't be too much. Well, I mean, a bare bones deal would be very different to no deal in at least two respects, I think. Firstly, economically, it will be less disruptive than not having a deal at all. And secondly, in terms of the politics that I was speaking about before, in terms of the ability and willingness of both sides to sit round tables and keep talking once we've got to the end of this year, I think that's far more likely if we've got even a bare bones deal than if the talks collapse in acrimony. I think in those circumstances, it's going to be very, very hard to maintain a dialogue between the EU and the UK, and that will affect cooperation across the board, not just in terms of 
goods and services, but in terms of cooperation in the fight against crime, cooperation on health matters, like when it comes to coronavirus. If there's genuine mutual recriminations because the talks have failed, I think that's going to be very, very difficult. Mm, Okay. What about when it comes to the US-UK trade talks? Um, You know, uh, Therese Raphael, Bloomberg's opinion columnist, was mentioning just earlier in the programme, you know, the, the very different feel of the documents that were presented on the UK side and the US side. It seems to me that there is much more vested, obviously, on the UK side of getting this deal to show the benefits of Brexit. Yeah, I mean, you've got to bear in mind that when people say we have an interest in getting a deal, you've got to think, what is that interest? And part of that interest is purely political, isn't it? Is It will be good for the government to have a document with US-UK trade deal on the front to wave around at home and say, you see, this is what we said we'd, we'd, we'd deliver, and we've delivered it. Uh, the small print, which was uh, apparent in the government's documents published yesterday, is even the government doesn't think that the economic benefits of even a pretty free, uh, far-reaching free trade deal with the United United States are going to be that big. So this is as much about politics as it is about the economics of trade. It's as much about saying this is the new buccaneering global Britain. The first thing we've done is we've signed this deal with the United States. The reality in economic terms will be far less impressive. And in terms of the timescale, I was saying earlier in the programme, it feels like we've got an election year in the US, so Trump isn't going to be rushing to get anything sorted. Boris Johnson has his fair shares of concerns to deal with in the domestic economy. You've got, of course, the EU talks going on on as well. I understand the optics there. But on either side, there doesn't seem like a particular uh, sense that this is being prioritized? Uh, No, I mean, if anything, I think the Americans were keener to get this done quickly than we were, because I think Trump would have liked an early win to take into the election campaign. But certainly from our side, I think from all the very, very bullish language about let's get out there and sign a trade deal with the United States, the priority given to it has decreased quite significantly, partly because we're focusing on the EU, partly because of the recognition that in economic terms, a trade deal with the United States isn't going to be a game changer. And partly, of course, because we have cross-cutting interests here. And the whole decision over 5G and Huawei sort of indicates our willingness to stand up to the United States and not do what they might want us to do, which might actually make those trade negotiations harder. Mm, Yeah. On on that point, the UK basically say that it won't give ground on the US on politically sensitive issues like healthcare, chlorinated chicken. Uh, The American trade chief, Robert Lighthizer, shrugging off the UK's concerns on Monday. He was talking to the Oxford Union, uh, saying that they weren't actually all that contentious. In his words, I don't think either of those are going to be what sinks us. so, uh, you know, very sounding actually kind of very relaxed about what could be quite uh, difficult issues. Uh, yeah, I mean, part of, you go into trade talk sounding positive, don't you? Otherwise, there's no point going <laughs> in the first place. But there are real issues here. And the issues are partly whether or not U.S. standards are compatible with what is politically acceptable here. It's partly if we're going to trade with the European Union. Uh, and remember, we've got this whole messy business about the Irish protocol. And we're, if we're letting in things that are illegal on the EU market, that just means there'll be more checks on the, on the border between Northern Ireland and Great Britain to make sure those things don't get into the EU market. These things are interlinked, which makes them uh, uh, still messier. But at the end of the day, trade talks are all about limiting your freedom of movement so that you can strike a deal with someone else. It might be saying we're not going to impose tariffs. We will deny ourselves the ability to impose tariffs. It might be we will align our regulations. But the, the, the priority of this government at the moment seems to be to stress the politics of being in control rather than, if you like, the economics of making concessions to increase trade. So I think with both the U- with the US and the EU, mm-hmm. 
this government seems to be prioritizing the political narrative, which is we're taking back control, we're not sacrificing sovereignty, and that will limit what we can achieve in any of these trade negotiations. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.